Recorded live. From Coolidge, Arizona on March the 20th, 2016. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 5. Great things going on in this book. Dr. Luke is recording the history of how things got started 2016 years ago, give or take. He's telling us how what God had in his mind as his objective for creation, how it is all coming together, and it's all coming together on the basis of the resurrection of Christ was the proof of the pudding. There are some highlights here I want to um, talk about in verse 11 of chapter 5, great fear came upon all the church. Well, you can see why. We don't have that kind of fear in the church today because nothing like that happens today. Well, yeah, and Alex says he's a, well, he, he talked about guardian angels and would prevent this from happening. Um, I, uh, I think that um, uh, when you realize that the reason this happened, and we can discuss different factors of it, but the real reason that I think that this took place with Ananias and Sapphira is to impress the church that you've got to be real. You've got to. You, there's no. There's no room for phoniness in the church. And if everybody who was phony was struck down as these two were, our pews would be even more empty than they are. Don't you think? And, I mean, this is just one little area of their life that they were a phony in. Now, we had a discussion last week, and we don't need to revisit it, except that there are some of the folks here who feel like it was an act of God upon them. I'm not sure I buy that. I think um, Mervyn uh, expressed that opinion last week. Because then the verbs would have to be in what, what voice? Passive voice, and they're all in the active voice. So, <clears throat> and so... It's kind of hard to know um, about that, and it just may it may be that uh, <clears throat> that the their conscience being exposed was enough when they had done the wrong thing and were exposed in doing the wrong thing, they collapsed they they expired. It was not taken from them, at least by the grammar. Um, so uh, we don't have to agree on that, um, but it, because it seems like God was involved, and yet there's no evidence for that. Oh, I went back and read it again, and I just can't see where it just seemed to me like uh, the grammar is the clue there. But that doesn't matter. I mean, right now, that's not the issue. That's what happened, and it happened as an example to the people 
the rest of the folks there that you don't tamper with anything that reflects on the nature of God. We read that last week in this text. Don't tamper with anything. I mean, don't, don't, don't tamper with the nature of God. Because that's what they were accused of. You have lied to the nature of God, to the spirit of God. They were tampering with their expression of what they thought about God. That's the issue. Whether, as Merwin suggested, that they were struck down by God, which it doesn't say, but there could be, or whether it was self-imposed out of guilt, that's possible, but it doesn't say that either. But whatever took place, the event is historical. That we can all agree on, that it was a historical event, and it was to express to those people at that time, don't mess with the nature of God. Now, all most of our churches today don't even think twice about messing with the nature of God. They've got God as a threesome, as a foursome, as a fivesome. Totally off scriptural basis about who God is. And you go into the people up and down the street here, they don't, have, they don't believe what the Bible says about God, they don't believe what, he says, what, it, what the Bible says about Jesus, they don't believe what it says about the authority of God working through the what? The word? That he works somehow unilaterally? Folks, Those are all things that are tampering with how you view God. If you view God as one who manipulates your thinking and can unilaterally change how you think rather than you responding to the truth of God's word, that's manipulating the nature of God. That's the same thing that Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They were playing games by what they were doing, leaving an impression about what they really thought about God. You see, that's where water baptism comes in as well, because that's where you really, it really tells you, tells the world who know you, what you think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if people can push that off, then they're really pushing off what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because water baptism is what is telling the world one thing, is is telling the world what you really think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't tamper with that. That's dangerous. And it could be fatal. And eventually, when you face God, it will be fatal if you don't change your thinking. If you don't get that right, there's nothing else to get right. So what we have in this book going on so far 
<clears throat> leading us down here to verse 14 in a moment. We have Jesus making chapter 1, Jesus making promises to the disciples. Now, did you get yourself into that term where he made those promises to the disciples? You do. People do. But were those promises that he made to them, are they relevant to us? Come on now. Don't, you should know that by now. Of course not. He was speaking to a particular group of how many? Eleven at, the, eleven at this point in chapter 1. He's speaking to eleven. He's making promises to them. And the churches up and down this street are saying he's making those promises to everybody. That's hogwash. We love promises. You know why? And we avoid commands because promises can't be obeyed. We love promises. But we shy away from commands. And that's one of the reasons why there's folks motivated to have the discussion on baptism the way they have, because in Acts Act 2.38, when they asked Peter, what shall we do when they were brought to conviction? He said, well, I'm going to promise you this and this and this and this. No, he gave, a, he gave what first? He gave a command. And Upon the obedience in Acts 2.38 of that command, then there were promises. But we have to obey the command. We are, our need is to be focused on what is the command, and then are the promises made to us who keep that command, or were they made to somebody else? We have to make that distinction, or we get a, a, a what do they call it, a smorgasbord of Christianity, which really has nothing in it. All right. So there was, there was Jesus' promises to the disciples, and then in chapter 2 we have Peter's message, his message reconfirming that what's happening today is what the Old Testament prophets were speaking of. This is that day, Jesus said, I mean Peter said, to that audience of thousands, and he provided evidence of the resurrection. And then we move into the story of the lame man and his healings and all of the lessons we learned as we were traveling through that adventure. And then in, with Ananias and Sapphira, we, we witnessed the consequences of sin, speaking ill about the nature of God, making an implication about the nature of God. You have lied to the Spirit, which is the nature of God. And then in verse 11, fear came upon all the church. And folks, it resulted in life. 
It resulted in growth. Look at verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. Multitudes. Because of what we have just outlined briefly and probably inadequate in some ways, but giving you a, a quick overview of where we've been in this book at the beginning of what God is establishing once and for all and what he has done to this point has brought about true church growth. And then we have in verse 13, we have, we have on top of that we have the establishment of the authority of the apostles. Well, verse 12. And by the hands of the whom? Do we have apostles today? No, we don't have apostles today. Not like this. Not, not in the official sense. Because where were they in the church? They were in the foundation of the church. The foundation has been laid. We don't have continuing apostleship nor prophets any more than we have a continual generational Jesus Christ. I was in a Bible study once with a preacher who was saying that yes, Jesus and all of these things are uh, dispensational that Jesus comes to every generation. Where do you get this? Where's the history of that? That's a Christian church preacher, by the way. He's gone. I bet he's got a different view now. No, he came to the generation that he went to, you know, and your How many of you have ever written a check? Have you ever written a check? You know, a money check? No, sir. Good man. I try to avoid that, too. But did you ever put a date on it? What's the date? That's telling you the date of when the generation that Jesus came in. That's what that date's there for. 2016, right? So that's telling us that Jesus came to that generation, only to that generation, but the effect of his coming needs to be and must be preached to every generation. You see the difference? He doesn't come to every generation. He's not going to, be, he's not going to die and be buried and raised from the dead every generation. But there are people who believe that in the Christian churches. Now, what kind of generation are you talking about? Are talking about 40 years? Are you talking about racism? <laughs> You've got a good point. Well, I think they're thinking of it in terms of, of the 40-year thing. You know, every generation. Well, the words all mean the same thing. That's right. Yeah. Well, so, <clears throat> you see, that's why God established his plan through, and I hate to use this term, because we've allowed bad people to use this term improperly. 
But, folks, it doesn't change the meaning of the term because bad people have used it improperly. And that is God has provided us with the evidence through progressive revelation. That's why we have a series of covenants. And we're not under the covenant that Jesus was born under because he was born under what covenant? Under the law, under the old uh, under the law of Moses. He was born under that covenant, came to those people under that covenant. Died died according to the terms of that covenant, you can't duplicate that today because that covenant's not around anymore. What's the evidence of it? That's what the book of Revelation is telling us, that all of the evidence ended when? 70 A.D. Everything was fulfilled that God had in his mind. It says it was. We look, we look at that in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24 and chapter 24, verse 47. All those verses of Scripture tell us that everything was completed in that generation. There isn't one prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And the people who say that there is are folks who either are Bible void, I'm trying to be generous, or... They are people who have no respect for what Jesus said. Every, every prediction that Jesus said had in the context, every, whether it's Matthew 24, whether it's Luke 21, Mark chapter 3, I don't care where you go. Every context that talks about Jesus, Jesus talking, talking to people about future events, he says these things are all going to take place in the terms of this generation. No exception. You're talking about 99.9% of the churches today. And I see it for one reason, because there's money there. Oh, that's where the money, money is. Anytime uh, you got it. And we need the money. You can't do anything without money. You ever go to the grocery store without money? <laughs> Yeah, you got to have. I mean, that thing God God designed us to to use a medium of exchange. That's divine. We ought not be afraid of it. I'm going to be really bold today and ask for some donations today. Probably get thrown out, but I've been thrown out of bigger churches. <laughs> But, you know, uh, the, uh, but this futurist thing, and you never, you, I, don't, I, I must not have sent you that 18 pages. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I already deleted it, but I, I wanted to give, it, give uh, samplings of it through, but I can make copies of it. Well, I guess I can't do that either. So anyway, anyway, you know, the reason why so many people have turned their back on Christianity is because of the stupidity of so-called Christians. 
I think I can. The reason that a lot of people turn their backs on Christianity is because of the stupidity of Christian people. We are so dumbed down. No, I know. I didn't. wasn't looking at you, Alex. <laughs> no. <laughs> but what's that? Well, I was just kind of grouping it into the whole spectrum, separating the the Christianity from the world's perspective versus the Christianity of the New Testament. I don't always define that, but that's the difference I'm making. I, we have to be careful about including too many people into the Christian realm who really aren't Christian. We, we like to do that because we feel like we're being very benevolent when we do that, but we're just letting them go to hell. That's not very thoughtful. You know, we need to strike the difference. We need to have a court. The Bible teaches that if you're going to blow a trumpet, don't blow it with an uncertain sound. You know that? Are you familiar with that? If you've got an uncertain sound, you don't know what the pitch is. You know, have you ever heard somebody just sort of learning to play the trumpet? Oh, it's, it's, it's something fierce, you know. You don't know where they are. You certainly don't know where they're going, neither do they. But somebody who has some accomplishment on the trumpet can hit that mouthpiece and hit a note clean and pure. And the Bible says that's how our message ought to be, not fuzzy. And when, when people say, when I said, the reason I said that is that some of the folks you that are on some of the other classes are probably getting tired of me saying this. But Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist in my day, great author, British scholar, turned his back on the Bible because of what Jesus said about future events as he heard it through Christendom. He said, how can Christians be right when Jesus said that Caiaphas, the high priest, was still going to be living when he returns? (laughs) Jesus said that. So, Bertrand Russell said, if Jesus said that, but Christianity doesn't believe that, why should I be a Christian? Why? Because we haven't taken time to explore things that Jesus taught, and he taught many things like that, and everything that he said prophetically was always conditioned with a time frame of during that generation it would be fulfilled. No exceptions. And that we don't believe it. All of our churches today, I mean, the churches that I'm out of anyway, all believe that these prophecies have not yet been fulfilled because they do not understand the nature of the prophecy. 
They don't understand the old covenant. Lana's my encourager there on the old covenant. She's got a handle on history that's unbelievable. She's good at it. But when you go to the old covenant and you realize that all of the predictions that Jesus renewed in his lifetime were all from the old covenant and all related to whom? To Israel. It's black and white. Okay. So here we have in Acts chapter chapter 5, we have in verse 12, by the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders, So now, if we don't have any apostles, can we have signs and wonders? What's one exception? I'm throwing you off base, intentionally. Oh, doesn't Jesus do the signs and wonders? Don't think so. Only the apostles were assigned by Jesus to do signs and wonders. That is, after his departure. You know, after. But Jesus said, I don't do any of this stuff. No, he said, the Father does it through me. And then he gave then the authority to the apostles for the confirmation of their message. Apostleship and their message. Now, we have the full message. And it has been adequately confirmed. So do we need signs and wonders if that's what signs and wonders were for? If we say, I want signs and wonders today and I'm going to promote signs and wonders, we're saying that there's something wrong with our Bible, that it is not adequate. That the confirmation that they had of the word wasn't real. So therefore, i got to have it renewed. See, that's what we call generational dispensationalism. Everything has to be repeated every generation. Folks, that is not biblically sound. Got to get away from thinking that way. The, the hands of the apostles. <coughs> Don't ever forget verse 12 and by the hands of the apostles. Now, what's the one exception? No. No. It's only because you don't know where I want to go. They had the power that when they went in and established new churches that did not have a record What could they do? What could the apostles do? Well, they could lay their hands on certain persons within that body, empowering them to do signs and wonders only until such a time as were needed or they died. Now, once the apostles died, what happened to those people? They died off. What happened to signs and wonders? They died off. They just don't exist anymore. And if you do, what are they the evidence of? They're the evidence of the devil. 
You don't buy that. Let me read it to you. I, you know, I haven't had any good ripe tomatoes thrown. What was that? Well, I, I didn't quite hear what he. Can you help me? No, they did not continue after the apostles. Any sign and wonder done this side of the apostolic group, the apostles, is satanic. Or what? Well, either way, because it's deceptive. Let's read a little verse in here. Let's go to Thessalonians. Where do I want to go here? I thought, where, where, where are, you know, I'm still not quite familiar with this uh, newer Bible. I think it's in Second Thessalonians 2. <clears throat> you guys ready to? You know, you if you, if you don't have your seatbelts on. <laughs> oh, by the way, Nancy, Kaipo and I had a good discussion on baptism Thursday night. Oh. Yeah, because your your comments. Um, so, and when when I don't hear something, why don't hesitate telling me about it. Anyway, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is addressing the church at Thessaloniki. Somewhere around 60, I suspect. 60 A.D. Verse 5 and we're going to take our time here because we're talking about in Acts chapter 5 the real and true root of church growth. It doesn't it does not correlate with what we see in today's churches. Verse 5, chapter 2. Do you not remember? Now, there's a good question. What's that? Oh, chapter uh, chapter two of Second Thessalonians and verse five. Did I say it wrong? You thought it wrong. That's what they were picking up. 
Oh. All right. Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse five. Do you not remember? Now there, you know, there's a need for about a, you know, a couple of months. That while I was still with you, because, you know, he was a part of the founding of the Church of Thessaloniki. By the way, that's a beautiful city. I really liked, I really liked Thessaloniki. Um, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So Paul had taught them things. Now, what was their responsibility with what he had taught them? To remember those things. Now, that'll get you. That's why I said get your seatbelt on. Get, you know, get your seatbelt. Get it fastened. Oh, well, you're in trouble. <laughs> remember, remember what you are told. Get it assimilated as you hear it. Verify it to make sure it is true. But once you've determined that, get it in your heart. And verse 6, now, you know, there's a lot of things involved in here that we've dealt with in Revelation that I'm not going to deal with in this class. But, and you know what retains, restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery, for the mystery, I'm, I'm, I, this is not quite where I want to go, but I'm just getting some background here, so just follow along. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Then, when Peter or Paul was writing to the church. Only he, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's dealt with in chapter 17, the book of Revelation. Verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed. People will get their eyes open whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his... Well, now, isn't that something? First of all, this is one of the key verses for the futurist, and the word coming doesn't even exist there. See, right there. And it's coming as a, no, a, a verb. This is not a verb. This is a noun. And it's in the feminine gender. So you see. It's a state of being. It's like when the disciples in Matthew 24 asked Jesus, 
they came upon the beautiful city of Jerusalem. You know, we we spent a couple of weeks describing that city of Jerusalem on the Revelation class. It's in the notes somewhere. I don't know where, what episode. But, you know, it, the towers were just marvelous. It was, a, it was a city that put Babylon to shame. Beautiful, beautiful city. And the disciples came to Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 1 to 3, and they asked him, and what will be the sign of your presence? The word coming isn't there either. It's not anywhere. It does not exist. And everybody keeps talking about some future coming. Folks, that's hogwash. I hope I'm blunt. Because otherwise you won't get it, you know. And after you get mad, you'll mellow out a little bit. But you see, this is the word that's used in Matthew 24. In the brightness of the present. His presence. It's a noun. It's a state of being that was established at the fall of Jerusalem. And the same thing the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 24, what will be the sign of your presence? Same word, parousia, the state of being, the sign of your dominance. Now that we've got that accomplished, let's go to verse 9. You don't need another couple years on that? Well, we've already spent them on Thursday night. That is, the the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Now remember, this started back in verse 5. The one whose coming the one whose presence is it let's check that out it is it's Perusia as well is in accord with the activity of Satan so who is present Who is present here? If you refer to the first one in verse 8 as the appearance of his... Um, this is the lawless one. But then what's that? The lawless one. This is the lawless one. That's right. We have the lawful one in verse 8. We have the lawless one in verse 9. One whose coming is in accord with the activity of whom? How will you know it's in the activity of Satan? What's it say? Okay, because there will be power and signs and wonders. You see, the apostolic age was coming to a close. The the signs and the wonders were already ceasing. 
as predicted in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that those things would all go away when the scriptures were compiled. So if we say that they're still with us today, we are saying the Bible has no merit to us. That's not a safe thing to be saying. By the way, I, I wrote my master thesis on the explanation of that. And, of course, the Dr. Vermilion, an excellent, excellent Greek scholar, took my article and, and uh, he gave me an A. I'd done my homework, but he had a little comment. So what? <laughs> Because see, I was at a, I was at a Western Evangelical Seminary, which believed that signs and wonders continue. And of course, my thesis was on in opposition to that. So see, I've I've been on both sides of this issue. All right. So one who's a, who 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 who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan is going to have with it. Power, signs, and wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, why? Don't be bashful because of why? Lana, did you say it? Because they didn't believe the truth. Because they did not hold to the love of the truth. So in this verse, the basis of salvation is contingent on what? Having a a love for truth. All right. So they that they allowed it to happen to themselves. Right. That's something they were given. Not something that was forced upon something that they did under the consideration. Yep. Good. And verse 12, and, and I'm skipping some verses here, but in order that they all may be judged, God is using how a person looks at signs and wonders as a basis of whether or not they love the truth. That they all may be judged. That's the basis of God's judgment who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness and what in this verse does wickedness refer to? What he just got to to talking about, the signs and wonders that are used to deceive. Now don't go out here and say, wow, we need signs and wonders today because as soon as you've done that, you've aligned yourself with whom? Satan. Wickedness. And that, that's a need of a call for repentance. Don't be, don't be looking for signs and wonders. And even in Jesus' time, you know, he said, the only signs and wonders that I'm going to give to you people is the signs of my death, burial, and resurrection. And the only sign we have today is the one that's denied by everybody, and that's water baptism is the sign to the world that Jesus died and buried and rose again. We have to maintain a love for truth. 
And folks, it's really scarce. That's why Proverbs somewhere says, buy the truth and don't get rid of it. Buy the truth. The truth shall set you free. Jesus said that in John. The truth shall set you free. Free from all of this garbage in the world today. We may not have a handle on all of it, but we always need to have such a love for the truth that we are driven toward what's right. I think a lot of that desire for signs and wonders is people trying to confirm their faith by certainty, which is the death of faith. <laughs> well, yeah. <clears throat> but they, they want something to hold on to to confirm their faith. But once they've done that, they've killed their faith by certainty. That's right. Certainty is the tool of the devil, and that's what caused the problem in heaven to begin with, and the book of Job deals with that, is that <clears throat> Job's accusation against Job to the God was what? That Job would not serve God if he didn't have signs and wonders and was not physically blessed by God. God said, that's not true. We'll just go to prove you wrong, Satan, we will take away everything God, Job has. And that's where the story begins. One by one, he had his family lost, lost everything. He lost all the tools of his trade, his farm. He lost everything because God was trying to teach us that our relationship with God, with God is not based on stuff that he does or doesn't do with us. based on revelation, and it's based on truth. Folks, we have to believe what the scriptures say that's relevant to us today, and it has to be apostolic-based. We have to believe in the apostles' authority. They are in the foundation of the church. And what we have from book of Acts on now through the epistles is the apostolic teaching to the church on how we ought to think. Do we go to Jesus for that? No. Because Jesus was where? What covenant? He was under the old covenant, not under the new covenant. So he he delegated the apostles as the executors of his will, and it's to them we are responsible. And their teachings. We got to close. Oh, excuse me. Uh, was he was he given uh, was Job given <coughs> back? Like, oh, eventually. Yeah, when when he came to realize, and 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 in the last 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 chapter of that book of Job, he said, "Now I see God, not because of things, not because of stuff, not because of signs and wonders." But now he saw God in his purity apart from all of those things that we feel Satan convinces us of that we have to have in order to know that God is there. That's false. Yeah, Job, Job said, now I, now I see God. Not literally, but he sees God as he really is. Satan says no one will serve God if he doesn't favor him. And God said, that's not true. And that was the conflict that gave 
the problem to begin with in, in why Satan was cast out of heaven and why the earth was created. We've got to close. Father, we thank you for a good day in your word together. And may we ponder uh, not just the immediate text, but the compilation of all of these things together to realize that we have something big going on here. And it needs to have an impact with where we are and how we think and how we look at your church. Father, where we have erred, we ask for forgiveness. May our commitment be to be true. In Jesus' name, amen.